Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. You know, my wife and I just had a baby, so I thought I'd throw in a baby joke. Uh, why was the baby ant so confused? Because all his uncles were ants. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you everything you need to win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from Jake Shimabukuru, aka the Jimi Hendrix of ukulele. Nice. That'll help break the ice. This is an encore presentation of a show that originally aired last October. Coming up, Anna Kendrick tells us about her favorite social network. And Stephen Chbosky, writer and director of the movie The Perks of Being a Wallflower, lists his favorite stories that capture a time and place. Yes, speaking of which, cast your mind back to a time called last October, Ah. when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The first debate between President Barack Obama and his Republican challenger, Mitt Romney. Turkey has continued to shell military targets in Syria for a second day in a row. Seth MacFarlane will host this year's Oscars. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by John Spong. He is a senior editor at Texas Monthly. John, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? The owner of a 42-story condo tower in Dallas uh, took out an ad, a full-page ad in the Dallas Morning News this week, to kind of apologize to a neighboring sculpture museum for the glare being reflected off of the windows of this new condo tower. <laughs> really? The, what was the glare doing? Was it roasting the, the other building? It seems to be screwing up all kinds of things over at the Sculpture Garden. It's the Nasher Sculpture Center. The light reflected off the condo tower is coming through the ceiling, the glass ceiling at the Sculpture Center. So it's uh-huh. going to fade the art if they keep that up on the walls. Oh, wow. Also, there's premature aging and <laughs> increased risk of skin cancer for that building. That's true. <laughs> you know, you got to factor that in. Uh, there was also, maybe even more significant, a big piece, a skyscape, as they call it, that a guy named James Terrell made. And so you would go underground, you look up and you see sky, and that's the art. And what has happened is now when you look up through that hole, you see the condo tower next door instead. <laughs> But, you know, couldn't that artist say, my art is, it's changing with the times. Look, my art is different depending on when you look at it. What he's actually said is we can change the art somewhat and maybe move it on the grounds and change the shape of the hole that you look through, and that will cost $1.5 million. (laughs) Wow. Well, here's my question. Why didn't they think about this before? Yeah. It's not clear. Originally, the building was supposed to be 21 stories, and then later it gets changed to 42. Originally, there was going to be a different surface, and now it's this service. Uh, One of the interesting things is the condo tower is called the museum tower. Uh, I think they want condo owners moving in that want to go to the museum. And so they need to figure something out with the museum. The stars aren't the only thing that are big and bright in Texas. So (laughs) the museum tower. The obnoxious condos are big and bright in Texas as well. A new anthem. John Spong of Texas Monthly. Thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our barrel-aged, 180-proof history lesson with booze. This is a potent history lesson. Yeah. Uh, First, here's the history part. This week back in 1899, a revolutionary household device was patented. Or rather, it was a device that then inspired a revolutionary device. Yeah. Our friend Michelle Philippi tells the story. John Thurman's invention blew. Really, that's what it did. See, in 1899, 
Thurman patented a device that rather inefficiently cleaned carpets by blowing dust off them. Some historians consider it the first motorized vacuum cleaner, though folks at the time considered it just a pretty lame gizmo. Among them was a Brit named Hubert Cecil Booth. He saw Thurman demonstrate the vacuum and thought it'd be cooler if the machine sucked dust up. But how to keep it from coming right back out? One night, Hubert laid a handkerchief on a sofa, put his mouth over it, and inhaled. The fabric trapped a ton of grime. Eureka! The vacuum filter! Hubert's vacuum wasn't like the thing in your closet. It was a huge, gas-powered pump mounted on a horse-drawn cart. He'd park it outside a house, run tubes through the windows, and fire it up. The noise was insane, but housewives loved it. They threw parties so friends could watch the dirt shoot down the transparent hoses. Hubert got rich selling this vacuuming service. But it wasn't till 1908, back in the USA, that another businessman got the bright idea of selling people the vacuum itself. It was a smaller, portable version invented by an Ohio janitor and manufactured by a guy named William Henry Hoover. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. On the line is Melissa Vendetti. She is bartender at the Main Street Grill in North Canton, Ohio, former home of the Hoover Company. And Melissa, you heard the history. What drink does it inspire you to make? Well, I have a drink called Suck It Up, and actually, William <laughs> Hoover um, might have been a drinker in his time, but mm. that would have been hush-hush. Oh, I'm sure a wealthy man in the Prohibition era would not use his money to obtain illegal liquor. <laughs> yeah, no, at least nothing that anyone had heard about. So on the cover of his biography is a picture of him with a big picture of lemonade, and mm-hmm. he was quite the lemonade drinker, so I incorporated that in my cocktail. All right. And it's one and a half ounces of Crown Royal. All right. A fourth of an ounce of Amaretto, a generous splash of fresh squeezed lemonade, and a splash of soda water. And you chill that and serve it up in a martini glass. And then you just hoover it down, as they say in England. And you hoover it down as fast as you can. You suck it up, baby. (laughs) North North Canton, I mean, it's my understanding that your town was a real company town, right? Like everyone worked in the Hoover factory, correct? Everyone did. In fact, of my um, 11 aunts and uncles, seven of them worked there and my grandfather. It was all what everybody did. You must have had the the cleanest house in America. (laughs) Just no dust. Nope. It's all clean. Interesting history, Rico. It was. You know, and it makes me think of all the other venerable cleaning families in America, like the Swiffers, uh, the Dirt Devils. Yes, the Roombas. That's not a family, man. They're robots. That's weird. Uh, The Electroluxes? Yeah, the Electroluxes. They're great people. Okay. Folks, you can anthropomorphize our cocktail recipes. They're all at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is Stephen Chbosky. His 1999 novel, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, sold over a million copies. Critics rank it among the best young adult books ever. Stephen's own movie adaptation is in theaters now. Here he is to talk about it and to list some inspirations. 
Hi, this is Stephen Chbosky. I am the author, writer, and director of The Perks of Being a Wallflower. And uh, my movie is a coming-of-age story. It's about a 15-year-old boy who enters high school. And he's a shy kid, but it's about these friends that accept him and see him for exactly who he is. I was trying to capture the early 90s, and it's set in my hometown of Pittsburgh. So here's my list of other works of art that I love that I think capture a place and a time. I have to start with my favorite album of all time, which is uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. Even though that's about New Jersey, growing up in Pittsburgh, I always felt a kindred spirit with that album because I thought it captured the blue-collar essence of Jersey, the desperation sometimes that people felt. I know that a lot of people in my family felt when work was scarce, but also about that, that absolute desperate need to break out and make a great life for yourself. think about Thunder Road or I think about the song Born to Run and he's saying to this girl we can get out of here it reminded me of all those times growing up and going through the Fort Pitt Tunnel in Pittsburgh two of the best scenes in my movie take place in that tunnel it's just we all know that time when you're just dying to have a life outside of this world that you know that tunnel to me was always the symbol and I've driven through that tunnel to Springsteen music I think it's the greatest expression of being a 23 year old kid Uh, number two is a, is a dead tie because you cannot possibly say L.A. Confidential without saying Chinatown, two great noir films about Los Angeles. Both Chinatown and L.A. Confidential capture the wonderful duplicity of Los Angeles. You have an exterior that is so beautiful, you know, the, the, the best-looking people you've ever seen in your life. It's sunny, it's, you know, the cars are great, but underneath it all there is this there's a secret life, and not necessarily a dark life, but it's secret. There's always a thing about this town about image versus reality. LAPD, sit down. Who in the hell do you think you are? Ed. Get away from our team. Shut up. A hooker cut to look like Lana Turner is still a hooker. She just looks like Lana Turner. She is Lana Turner. What? She is Lana Turner. And when I see what Curtis Hansen brought to L.A. Confidential, how even though it was set in the 50s, he chose the modern houses. It had this almost a timeless feel. You could look and say, oh, the cars are a little bit different. The, the fashion is a little bit different. But it still felt relevant when it was released, and it still feels relevant today. It's aged incredibly well. And that is one of the movies that I've always studied to figure out how do you make a movie about a time that will always feel timeless. <laughs> The third on my list is a book, and it is, I think, the greatest book by the greatest storyteller. The author is Stephen King, and the book's The, the Stand, about what happens to the world when a super flu gets out of a, a government testing site, and it kills 99.9% of the population of the earth. And it's not about a specific place. It's about pockets of places from Maine to Las Vegas to Colorado to New York, and it perfectly captures each region and the country as a whole. Probably the greatest book ever written about Las Vegas, even though it was post-apocalyptic, you know, taken over by the devil, Las Vegas, cast Colorado in the most beautiful light I've ever read about Colorado. Every location, 
the idea of, of the, the, the Holland Tunnel, the character of Larry trying to get out of Manhattan, which, which, which is rotting, and he's, he's crawling through the tunnel. You can never look at that tunnel the same way. When I did my television show, Jericho, the direct inspiration for my part in it was The Stand. You know, listen, I, do I think that Stephen King is the greatest literary mind of the 20th and 21st century? No. Uh, he's simply the best storyteller. I defy anyone to point to another 1,150-page book that you can read in five days. And I know that we're on public radio, and right now I am. I imagine there's some people out there that are like, this young boy from Pittsburgh is very pedestrian in his taste. I, I would love to have coffee with you, and we can argue. <laughs> we'll have a talk about about uh, Jonathan and Friends and versus Stephen King, if that's even a uh, talk to have. The guest list from Stephen Chbosky, his movie The Perks of Being a Wallflower is in theaters now and rolling out to hundreds more this weekend. And uh, be forewarned, ladies and gentlemen, later in the show we visit another Pittsburgh native, the Primanti Sandwich. Yeah, the world hasn't heard this much from Pittsburgh since Andy Warhol played for the Steelers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or something. That is true. That was yeah. not a winning season for the Steelers that year. Nope. That was a bad draft. Folks, coming up, actress <laughs> Anna Kendrick sings my praises. You are the dorkiest interviewer <laughs> in the world. Okay, sort of sings my praises. Yeah. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later comic Kevin Nealon answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, author Lisa Zeidner reads from her new novel, Love Bomb. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actress Anna Kendrick. Two years back, she got an Oscar nomination for her role in Up in the Air, in which she played opposite George Clooney. Mm. She's also starred in the movies 50-50 and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. And the Twilight movies, but no one sees those. Pretty obscure, yeah, art yeah. house stuff. <laughs> this month, Anna is in two films, the crime drama End of Watch and also Pitch Perfect, a musical comedy where she plays a college hipster who reluctantly joins an all-girl a cappella group. Similar thing happened to me in college. Interesting. Uh, when I met with her earlier this week, I asked if she'd had any interest in a cappella before making this movie. When I was 18 and I'd just moved to L.A., a friend of mine had a crush on a guy who was in either USC or UCLA's a cappella group. Mm. And, it, you know, I guess there's like a bitter rivalry. It was this big upset. And now I can't remember which one was the favored one and which yeah. one actually won. But, you know, I thought it was going to be like the most excruciating night of my life. And I'm a huge dork. So <laughs> by the end of it, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and I like wanted to go meet them. And I felt really starstruck when I got to meet them. And At the same time, this movie is primarily about a group of women at college who are growing up and learning about themselves. You could have replaced acapella with the world of competitive chess, and it's it would have been essentially the same <laughs> yeah. movie. I mean, I realize there's not teamwork Less involved dancing. there. Right. But to me, that was the thing that I liked about the script. It wasn't like, oh, an opportunity to sing and dance on film. If anything, that just gave me clammy hands for three months. <laughs> but so, yet you were one of the youngest people nominated for a Tony for yeah, your performance I mean, I, in a Broadway you know, musical. I, it's, and I think of singing as a nice thing to have in my bag of tricks, but I was nervous about singing and dancing all over this thing. I was looking at your Twitter feed, mm-hmm. and you one of your tweets was, in other news, I just had to try to rap like Dr. Dre in a recording studio, hands down the worst thing I've ever had to do for my job. <laughs> <laughs> it was humiliating. They wanted a version of it for the soundtrack, and 
within the scene, I'm quite embarrassed, and it's kind of funny and awkward, and that was easy to play because I am embarrassed <laughs> and I feel quite awkward doing it. Yeah. Um, but then in the recording studio, I kind of had to do it as though I were just in a recording studio sure. doing, like, Dr. Dre's rap from No Diggity. <laughs> like, that's something I'm comfortable with. Oh, but that's kind of a charming moment in the film. And I didn't think, frankly, I, I didn't know I was going to be enjoying an acapella film. So many dude journalists have been like, <laughs> I was not looking forward to it, but it was great. I didn't Whatever. say I wasn't looking forward to no, it. No, 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 no. But I wasn't looking forward to it. But I, okay, but I saw it. good. So I want to ask you about something I saw repeated in many articles about you. And I oh. think the reason it's repeated is because... Oh, I can't wait to find out what this is. Well, it's the first line of your Wikipedia page. Oh. Anna caught the acting bug Ew. when she was 10. But hold on. Anna caught the acting bug when she was 10 when she took a bus to New York. You could have got the bug in the bus, by the way. That's something you should only say when the person is still 12 years old. So what happened? What, or maybe you didn't catch the bug. We hope you didn't catch the bug. I don't know. You know, I mean, when I was six, I started doing community theater because I liked it. And it grew into... The way that I learn about myself and people and the way people are. So there wasn't a particular moment when you were bitten? I mean, the first thing I ever did when I was six, I was one of the little orphans in Annie. Oh. And that, you know, for mm. a little girl, that's just a dream. Like, for whatever reason, getting to dress in rags <laughs> and sing and, like, pretend to be mad about doing your chores. I don't know what it is that taps into, like, a kid's <laughs> psyche. But yeah. there's something so fun for boys about doing Oliver and girls about doing Annie. I think there's something about, oh, I'm just a poor street urchin. A ragamuffin. Like, a ragamuffin, exactly. <laughs> um, just kind of grabbed me. I just huh, knocked my bizarre. whole. Um, oh, system you are away. a mess, sir. <laughs> I'll be right back. Sorry about that. No problem. Oh, you are oh, still oh. attached. <laughs> you are falling apart. I just witnessed. I just want to say. I hope that this ends up on the radio. I just witnessed the most adorable freak out, technical meltdown. He waves his hand and the microphone goes flying. Yeah. And then as he's trying to go out to get his engineer to help him come fix it, he is caught in the door because he is still wearing his headphones and the wire is wrapped around him. I'm, I'm flustered. I wish, yeah, I wish I had had a song I could sing. In your film, there, that would have been a moment that would have inspired some musical Like moment. a I'm a dork song? I get that. <laughs> no, we don't sing. We don't like burst into song in the movie. Which is true. I guess that's the weird thing about acapella and, I, I, and the acapella TV shows is there's a framework for when people sing, which yeah. I think kind of takes away well, from the best part of a musical on... is when people spontaneously sing. I'm the last remaining person, but I still haven't seen Glee. But on Glee, they kind of burst into Glee song, either. right? Okay, well, either. we don't know, but yeah. maybe. <laughs> but we don't do that. Yeah, yeah, we're only ever singing... As if you and I were to say, hey, let's sing a song right now. Which is what Not makes like it... I'm going to sing my feelings. Like, but... you are the dorkiest interviewer <laughs> in the world. So I have some more questions. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? Um, I do have a little bit of a gut reaction when people still ask me about George Clooney. And mm -hmm. it's a good thing that I adore that man. Mm -hmm. um, and he is one of the easiest people to talk about. It's not like I'm secretly gritting my teeth and being like, he's so great. <laughs> um, but it is strange when something is utterly unrelated and people kind yeah. of ask me about it. It's like you're having dinner with your uncle who you only see every three years, and he's like, what's George Clooney like? <laughs> so I have said everything that I could possibly say about yeah. him. So. All right. Well, no Clooney questions then. But we do have a second question. Tell us something we don't know. It can be about you or an obscure fact about the world. Um... President Obama has a microbrewery, which I find very cool. There's, like, there's like a White House beer, 
Really? It's like a micro-brewed White House beer. He's so lithe, I don't see him as a beer drinker. Oh, yeah, that's true. How did you learn about this? Were you drinking beer in the White House? No, I saw it on Reddit. And for those who don't know, Reddit is a social news site that you can post on, and you post on Reddit, right? I have an anonymous account, so... Okay. But that's what I like about it, is so I can post kind of silly things that I wouldn't feel comfortable putting on Twitter yeah. or, you know, comment on things. And I get to participate in this one online community in the way that most people do, as yeah. opposed to Twitter, where, you know, I would have to be very diplomatic all the time. So I like that Reddit is anonymous. So it gives you a chance to post slanderous articles about George Clooney without people knowing. <laughs> exactly. A uh, graceful interview, Brendan. Well, well executed. You know. You know, maybe watching a movie about awkward freshmen made me behave like an awkward freshman. That's my defense. So yeah. did you follow that up by asking someone to the fall formal? <laughs> no. Was that nice for you? No, but I did cut work the rest of the day and listen to Sebado <laughs> in my bedroom. So. Actually, yeah. that sounds like a great idea. We should do that. All right. Uh, folks, if you feel like playing hooky, we encourage you to waste some time on our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. Hey, watch it! Whoops, sorry. I'm sorry. And now, time to eavesdrop. Lisa Zeidner has authored five books, including the acclaimed Layover. Her new novel is a black comedy called Love Bomb. Today we overhear her reading a dinner party worthy, though not at all wedding party appropriate, excerpt. Hi, I'm Lisa Zeidner. My novel, Love Bomb, is about a wedding in a suburban backyard taken over by a terrorist. She calls herself the terrorist of love, and she's in a very, very bad mood. Here she is. The bride did not wear white, but the terrorist did. The bride wore a fitted blue cocktail dress, shimmering and shiny, the color of a duck caught in an oil spill. The terrorist, however, wore the most conventional gown of white lace and satin, complete with veil. The guests had already crowded into the great room to await the bride. Until this moment, the biggest setback had been the threat of bad weather. Instead of the familiar strains of Pachelbel's cannon, the assembled guests heard a series of whirs outside the door from what sounded like a power drill. While they turned to face the noise, the terrorist, not Tess, made an entrance from the French doors leading to the backyard. She did one runway strut down what passed for an aisle. Then she just spun around to face the crowd and allowed everyone, including the wedding photographer, to get a long look. With her wedding dress, the terrorist wore what looked like an old World War II gas mask, bulky as a scuba diver's. You couldn't see her eyes through the plastic portholes because over the gas mask she wore wraparound mirrored sunglasses. Threaded from the gas mask to her arm was some kind of small black box attached with an iPod armband. On the box, a small button flashed. The arm wearing it was clearly a woman's arm, a very fit woman's arm. This woman had put in some serious time with free weights, the younger men would later agree, when her arms became a central question. How could anyone who knew her fail to recognize those arms? Shouldn't the person she wanted to hurt, the person responsible for endangering the lives of 60 innocent bystanders, recognize the tone of her skin, her elbows? 
only as she walked at certain angles could you see that she wore a belt that appeared to be made entirely from rounds of ammo, on the sides of which was somehow clipped as if it were a cell phone, a sawed-off shotgun? Not a soldier of fortune crowd, but it appeared to be a sawed-off shotgun. Despite the artillery, no one took the terrorists seriously at first. Almost everyone assumed that she was part of an artsy ceremony. Tess and Gabriel had been very secretive about the details of the wedding, revealing only that it would be intimate. The older guests, who resolutely understood that your own wedding was the worst possible time to get creative, attempted to smile indulgently. Good old-fashioned sexism. It was difficult to be terrified of someone in a strapless push-up bra. She had a rifle, but it was probably not even loaded. It was impossible to believe that some man in the gathering could not approach her from behind and wrest it from her hands while she instinctively yelped and protected the strapless dress from being dislocated. Most unamused were the mental health providers, the father of the bride, the maternal grandfather of the groom, and a handful of the wedding guests were psychiatrists who could call in a script for Thorazine or process a committal right on the spot. They did not think this woman was fetchingly creative. They would think she was schizophrenic. The outfit alone screamed, inpatient. Author Lisa Zeidner. Learn how much more disastrous a wedding can become by reading the rest of her book, Love Bomb. Meanwhile, you are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of a dinner party, the food. And Brendan, as you know, uh, America has long been experiencing a sandwich renaissance. Mm -hmm. You now have grilled cheese sandwich restaurants. You reported recently on these new look fish sandwiches that are propping up all over the place. It's true. Pretty soon there's going to be a panini flying over the White House. (laughs) I would salute that. One nation under sandwich. But uh, a sandwich I did not think would catch on nationwide, I have to say, is the Primanti sandwich from my hometown of Pittsburgh. This summer, there was a Brooklyn restaurant called Char Number no. 4. It became the latest place to put a version of this weird thing on the menu. So this week, I visited the original Primantis in Pittsburgh's Strip District, and I talked with an expert about it. My name is Antonia Haggerty, really Cordetti. Then you were born Cordetti. Cordetti, that's my Italian name, last name. And I am the manager of Primantis since 1974. That's, I can't even count that high. That's because I'm, I'm old, that's why. <laughs> so you, I'm sure you've told this story many a time, but for those who have never heard of a Primanti sandwich, what does it consist of? So a Primanti sandwich is grilled meat, then we put provolone cheese on the meat, then we put on a sliced Italian bread, we slice our own bread, then we put fresh French fries, cut French fries, coleslaw, and tomatoes. On the sandwich. On a sandwich. A full course meal on a sandwich. Now, where did this come from? Tell us the story. Years ago, the strip was a big produce yard that the people would come and pick up all their produce. So all the truck drivers bringing in stuff from Florida, California, truck drivers come in. So they want a full course meal. They can eat 
and drive at the same time. So they get it right on a sandwich. So basically this was a meal on a bun for truckers. Right. And this started when? 1933. Now, this sandwich is starting to spread. Sort of unbelievably because it's just such a weird sandwich. But I now live on the West Coast. There are two restaurants that serve it, uh, a version of it in San Francisco. There's a food truck in Los Angeles. This restaurant in Brooklyn served it as a special. First of all, have you eaten any of these other knockoff versions? No, I never had it. Everybody's trying to copy us, but nobody came close yet. Because, you know, the secret is you have to have the right ingredients also. Well, now I have the Primanti sandwich in front of me with Capicola. So first of all, I'm going to take a bite and see yeah. if how it compares to the uh, Los Angeles one that I tried a couple of days ago. And it is, it is an enormous sandwich. It is like about two inches tall, <laughs> and it's impossible really to bite all the way through it. But I'm going to try because I have a huge mouth. And I want to see your reaction. Mm-hmm. As usual, it's wonderful. I love that I'm eating it at about 9.30 a.m. I'm having this for breakfast. And it's absolutely as I remember. This, the difference, it seems to me, between this and the one that I had in Los Angeles, which, by the way, is made by very nice former Pittsburghers, it's the coleslaw. What is it? Tell me, tell me how you make this well, coleslaw. Really, I don't like to give all the secret, but I mean, it's real like an Italian dressing, vinegar and oil, salt and pepper, and that's it. Really, that's what it is. Really, it's not a secret. I think it's how much stuff you put into the coleslaw. A lot of people think coleslaw is made with mayonnaise. Well, this is Italian virgin. Italian does not really eat that mayonnaise. So it's why they put a vinegar and oil, salt and pepper, a little bit of sugar. See, I think it might be the sugar. This is, it seems sweeter, whereas theirs had a little, like, too much bite in it. So I, I, hopefully your competition won't hear this and, and start putting more sugar yeah, in and getting it exactly. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> but it is, here's the other weird thing about the coleslaw. I'm not a fan of coleslaw. I'm actually a guy that I'll get coleslaw with, say, barbecue, and I'll send it back. Do you have any idea why does coleslaw seem more palatable on this sandwich? Yeah, I'm going to tell you why. Because the vinegars in that coleslaw hits the French fries, and it's delicious on top of the French fries. So the coleslaw flavors the French fries, which flavors the sandwich. Right. It's exactly what it is. Genius. Do you, how many of these do you sell in a year? A lot. <laughs> like McDonald's. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, well, the thing, though, the freshness is what makes our sandwich. We go through so much that we cut lunch meats every day. We cut potato three times a day. We cut coleslaw every day. We have bread delivered three times a day. So the freshness is what makes the sandwich. Uh, the- a good bread. A good bread. You have to have good bread. Has the menu changed at all in the 70-some-odd years? uh, No, we just had more because we had chicken, we had turkey, you know, for the people on diets. So there was something better. People come to this restaurant when they're on a diet? Of course. course. That's insane. People come even they don't want to eat the bread, so I have to put it on a plate. You don't come here for a diet. There are french fries on the sandwich. I know. But you know what, though? The fries are fried with vegetable oil. The coleslaw is made with vinegar, and really, it's not really that much calorie. I think they figure out even a pizza would be more calorie than a primary sandwich. All right. Well, nonetheless, I'm going to sit here and eat this and probably not eat again for the next two days that I'm here. No, come on. You're healthy. You could probably eat three sandwiches. We have people eating five already. Oh, my God. (laughs) You had a bypass after that. 
And Brendan, I should say the LA food truck that I mentioned. Yeah. They are called Steel City Sandwich, and they make an excellent Pramantes esque sandwich. It is just, it's not quite the original, which is okay. Mm. Well, yeah. consider yourself lucky because try finding an authentic Philly cheesesteak on the West Coast. Oh, man. It's, it's completely, it's like, why are you putting arugula where the cheese whiz is supposed to go? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, while you're at it, why don't you remake Rocky Four and have the Russian win? <laughs> That's not right. Destroying my culture. Uh, Folks, coming up, Will Chef from the band Ockerville River gives us a dinner party soundtrack. And comedian Kevin Nealon, formerly of SNL and Weeds, tells us what not to say to a sneezer. When the dinner party download returns. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Will Chef of the band Ockerville River suggests some songs for a dinner party. Also coming up, writer David Mish tells us the oldest joke in the world. Yes, the oldest joke in the world is a fart joke. So much for human dignity. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to our rude ancestors, let's learn how to behave better in the present via our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Kevin Nealon. In the 80s and 90s, he was a cast member for nine seasons of Saturday Night Live. He was also a star of the TV show Weeds, in which he played the accountant-turned-drifter-turned-Ponzi-schemer Doug. The show wrapped its final season just a few weeks ago, and he's, of course, a veteran stand-up comic. He's performing this weekend in Dallas, and also this weekend, his latest Showtime stand-up special, Whelmed, but not overly, comes out on iTunes. And Kevin, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, we looked for a clip of you from Weeds, but honestly couldn't find one where we wouldn't have to bleep out all the punchlines. So here is uh, one of your classic stand-up bits. I love all kinds of phrases. I listen for them. How about this one? Now hear me out. Ooh, whatever follows that is not going to be good. Believe me. All right, hear me out. I'm going to lower you into the well by your ankles. No, 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 no. Hear me out. Hear me out. Steve here will be dousing you with gasoline as a... Will you hear me out? You gonna hear me out? <laughs> so this is typical for you. This kind of That's, fascination yeah. with the the odd usage of language. Even the the title of the special, "Whelmed but Not Overly." Well, I've never had a good vocabulary, and in the last ten years, I've been um, trying to learn and listen closer to um, the English language. I think a lot of us just take for granted words, and overwhelmed was one of those words. You know, you never hear anybody just say, I'm whelmed. Did you delve backwards and actually, you know, try to figure out the, the origin of whelmed? No, I'm not that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not that yeah. I'm not that. He's an NPR listener, not a host, Rico. Yeah, so. sorry. Yeah. That should have been not my that. job. I'm sure it comes from some Latin-based word, yeah. meaning um, balanced. It usually is. <laughs> um, so our listeners have sent in a whole bunch of words strung all together in a form we call questions. Are you ready to answer some of these? I would love to hear them. I, I hope I can right. help. Well, that's perfect. Just the idea of helping sometimes helps. Um, this first question comes from Julia in Richmond, Virginia. Oh, I know who she is, yeah. 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 I don't know what her question is, but um, <laughs> it's going to be something curious. Yeah. Knowing Julia. That's so Julia. Yeah. She asks, is there a polite way to get the loud talker at a nearby restaurant table to tone it down a few decibels so I can enjoy my meal? Or is it loud talker's right to shout because he or she is also a paying customer? Hmm. Yeah. That's tough wow. for you. You don't seem like a, a shouter to me. Well, I'm not a shouter. In fact, that's, um, that's why I have a Prius. I have a, a hybrid car so that when I have road rage, I don't have to yell when I'm on the freeway. <laughs> the engine level is low. I just pull up alongside the guy and go, excuse me, you cut me off back there. I'm very right. angry. You know, I'm typically very patient. 
with people in a restaurant, except when it comes to people talking too loud or people on their cell phones. So how so how would you tell? How would I tell them? Yeah, I, I would. I, agree I would with you. turn to them, like, "Excuse me, I could hear you." Without saying that, just but saying it in my face, you know, my eyes, because I'm an actor. <laughs> I would look at them, kind of like I'm looking at you because you're talking loud. I'm, I'm sure you know that. But that might be, you know, if they recognize you, that might be difficult where they're like, honey, Kevin Nealon staring at us. <laughs> yeah, really that's weird. true. That could be a problem. Suddenly they loudly start telling everyone, look, it's Kevin Nealon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it backfires. You know, so also you have to kind of understand where they're coming from. Maybe they're talking loud because there's a fire. <laughs> you know, they're yelling, fire, fire. <laughs> right. Maybe the problem is you're not yelling loud enough to help yeah. them. Yeah. They're like, will you shut up? Yeah. <laughs> keep it down. I, I, I heard, yes, yeah, somebody's choking over there. Yes, that's fine. But keep it down. <laughs> you just chill out? Yeah. Have a little decorum. <laughs> All right. Speaking of decorum, here is Sneezy in Los Angeles. That's what they want us to call them. I work in a cubicle, right, Sneezy, next to a bunch of folks who don't say anything when I sneeze, hence his name. Is it bad etiquette not to say God bless you or Gesundheit when someone sneezes? Wow. These are good questions. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I do feel kind of odd when someone sneezes next to me and I don't say anything. But on the other hand, I think it's important to say excuse me when you sneeze yourself, you know. Ah. It sounds like you want a sneeze dialogue. So it's like sneeze, <laughs> excuse me, Gesundheit. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Right? A little sneeze conversation. Well, usually there's two sneezes in a row. That's true, at least. Oh. Maybe, you, maybe you could set up something where you just say, in the future... I'm saying, you know, Gesundheit, or God bless you for every time you sneeze this year. So I don't have to keep saying it. <laughs> oh, like a, like a futures contract. Yeah. If, yeah, I like that. That's very good. I often think about when when a woman sneezes, I feel like when I say God bless you, they think I'm being a creep. Really? So. Well, it's the beginning of a, uh, a come on to where it's like, God bless you are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I think that's the best time to attack somebody in mid-sneeze. Because they're totally, you know, helpless. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's why there's a German word for it. <laughs> that is correct. Gesundheit means attack in German. <laughs> also, when Gesundheit. when somebody like holds in their sneeze, you know, they go. You know what I say to them? I say. Perfect. Yeah, you got to speak their language. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we've more than answered Sneezy's question. So Layla in Kalamazoo asks, how do you leave a conversation at a party? You know when you want to move on to get some food, talk to other people, etc. I tend to wait until other people dismiss me, but it often leads to an awkward situation where I just end up saying something dumb and leaving with a bad feeling. Help. How does someone dismiss you? <laughs> yeah. I know. You are no. nothing. <laughs> you are nothing. <laughs> I am through with you. <laughs> we are done, Layla. <laughs> I've squeezed everything I can out of you. Get out of here. Get out of my sight. I'm leaving you a lifeless husk now, Layla. Here's what I do. When I'm talking, you know, like with people at an event and I'm kind of bored, I will say to them like I just had an idea. Oh, hey, do you want a drink? I'm going to go get a drink right now. I'll make sure they have a full drink in their hand. <laughs> I say, okay, I'll be right back. And I never come back. That's right. I do often, I use the, uh, sort of the same thing. If there's no drinks at the party, you can always say like, oh, excuse me, I have to go to the, you know, to the men's room or something. It's not like they're going to go find you and say, hey, you said you were going to come back and you did not come back. Yeah. Maybe another good line is, uh, hey, would you save my place for me? I'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Two hours later, there's still an empty when, space by the cupboard. When you see him out by the valet, you go, hey, I, I came back and my space was not uh, <laughs> saved. I was wondering what was up with that. <laughs> yeah. Nice. That's a little dinner party <laughs> jujitsu from Kevin Nealon. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave, sir. Well, it's my pleasure. I hope I helped, like I said. Totally. There's, everything's better now. Hey, would you guys excuse me? I need to get a drink. Would you like a drink? <laughs> 
Kevin Nealon, his Showtime special Whelmed, but not overly, comes out on iTunes this weekend, and you can see him live this weekend at the Addison Improv in Dallas. Meanwhile, improv some etiquette questions and send them to us. Please. Our address is at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, it's time for Chattering Class. This is where we're schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the subject is comedy, something Kevin Nealon just gave us a lot of. Uh, But our teacher is David Mish. He's an award-winning comic who's written for everything from SNL to Mork and Mindy. He has a new book out called Funny the Book, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Comedy. David, thanks for joining us. I want to start from the beginning. What's the oldest joke in the world? It is a uh, tablet found uh, in the Middle East from a civilization called the Sumerians in 1900 B.C. The joke is something which has never happened since time began. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. So, yes, the oldest joke in the world is a fart joke. It sounds like a Judd Apatow film. I could see that. <laughs> That's in, right. I think his way into that. it's in development right now. And anyway, I didn't say it was good. I said it was old. All right. Well, what's the, what's the oldest funny joke? Uh, the oldest funny joke is, I believe, 10th century in uh, Britain, as it was then known, as opposed to now when it's called Britain, um, which is, what hangs at a man's thigh and wants to poke the hole it's often poked before? Uh-oh. A key. Didn't see that coming, yeah. <laughs> so your, your book kind of covers the history of comedy, how comedy works, and just kind of features some of your favorite comedians. Talk a little bit about the history of it. When, when did people first take comedy seriously? Well, what's interesting is everything comes from theater, which actually came from religious festivals in ancient Egypt. But even though theater got started in ancient Greece, it was completely without comedy. Uh, went for about 100 years before the first comedies were produced. And it's all a sort of blend. You know, it was originally these Dionysian uh, uh, revels about uh, play, paying homage to the god Dionysus. And then these dances, uh, people started talking, and then they got mics, and then they told fart jokes. So, <laughs> And then there would be a brick wall behind them. Yeah, and, I mean, they uh, would yeah. construct the, in those days, of course, it was gigantic, 600-foot-tall brick walls. But in contemporary <laughs> times, we've learned to scale that down. Yeah. But um, actually, uh, so yeah, it started in ancient Greece, then uh, Rome, which had a much broader, bodier sense of comedy. They were, again, the Judd Apatos of the, uh, of the ancient world, mm-hmm. with a lot of people falling down down and acting drunk and uh, and being uh, licentious, etc. But wait a second, uh, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but Pliny the Elder, right? Yeah. Uh, there was mooning in Pliny the Elder. Yes, sure. there was. He referred to... <laughs> I learned uh, in your book. There was a, a reference to mooning then, which I feel, you know, <laughs> indicates that... So what does that tell us about civilization? I think everyone <laughs> says things are going bad. No, things are just staying exactly the same for thousands of years. <laughs> there's no progression, there's no regression. That's right. Well, that's. I guess that's comforting in it. In a weird way. I was also interested to learn in your book that um, stand-up, as we know it, kind of came from people like Oscar Wilde. Yeah, but let me go back just a, a couple hundred thousand years. The first uh, stand-up was a court jester. Uh, that ah. was really how it started. And it's a funny, funny story, uh, which is that evidently a, a slave was brought into the pharaoh's court, and he obviously knew nothing about 
court procedure, so he would bumble around and say ridiculous things, and people thought that was really entertaining, and he was made the first court jester. Uh, so the idea of standing up and telling, saying funny things started then. But then, uh, yeah, in America, many years later, Mark Twain and Oscar Wilde, of all people, would travel around the country. Charles Dickens did it, too, uh, do, doing lectures, but they were mostly funny. They were mostly things hmm. that people uh, would laugh at, and that sort of started off this sense that someone would come to your town and say funny things. I would say that, you know, Sarah Silverman and Oscar Wilde have some differences, but the same basic concept. It's a far cry from Larry the Cable Guy. (laughs) (laughs) Although they might have gotten along. In the old days, it was Lawrence the Cable Person. It was a whole different thing. (laughs) Very good. All right, so we're laughing. Why are we laughing? Your book talks about the mechanics of humor. Can you tell us what makes something funny? It's hard to sum up uh, real quickly, but let me do my best. Okay. So there's surprise. It's when uh, when we're presented with something we don't expect. There's the the naughty, the the forbidden, which mm-hmm. uh, we all know we shouldn't be uh, exposed to, and then when we are, it's funny because it's it's something that's not supposed to happen. Again, a form of surprise. Um, there's the what we uh, pretentiously call the rapid juxtaposition of different concepts. The example I use in the book is Jim Carrey emerging from a rhinoceros's butt in uh, <laughs> Ace when nature calls, certainly one of the great works of art of the 20th century. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so uh, those are all examples of how comedy disrupts the normal flow of events, which is ultimately the key to it. Do you have a favorite joke? Um, well, I'll tell you my one personal joke. Uh, I was a stand-up comedian for a, a little while. And That's really funny. <laughs> Thank you very That's, much. Thanks for coming just, to the show. Just thinking about and, that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I didn't do jokes. I did conceptual humor. I did bits and characters and things like that. My one joke was this. Uh, my girlfriend and I broke up a little while ago. It's uh, very sad, but we had different religious beliefs. She was an atheist, and at the time, I thought I was God. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Thanks. Enrico, David and I just scratched the surface of his book. It's full of awesome comedy trivia. Okay, so for instance? So for instance, the term slapstick, okay, yeah. it comes from the Batachio, which was a club-like prop made of two wooden slats, and it was used in early sketch comedy in the 16th century. Right. And basically actors would hit each other with these things, and it made a loud noise, but no one got hurt. I'm that, actually, I'm having a hard time picturing what that would be like. <laughs> See, now I get it. Funny, right? Yeah. (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, just one thing remains to give you for a perfect dinner party, some music to play. And for that, we turn to Will Sheff, the man behind lauded indie band Ockerville River. Here's Will to suggest a few tunes by other musicians. Ow! (laughs) Okay, less amusing now. I'm Will Sheff. I play and sing with a band called Ockerville River. So I don't go to a lot of dinner parties... um, I guess I I just don't get asked to. I don't know. But my way into thinking about this uh, dinner party soundtrack thing was I suddenly set the whole party in my mind outdoors. So I kind of pictured eating outdoors in the summer, and then suddenly I could think about what music I'd put on. The first song, which is uh, from a really fantastic 1974 record by a guy named Willie Hale, who went by the stage name Little Beaver, because when he was a kid he had buck teeth. Um, he did this whole record called Party Down. It's kind of a soul concept record about partying. And um, he was a session guitarist, had this really distinctive sort of picking style that you'll hear on this song. This is the title track, Party Down, off of it. Everybody party down. He, he 
does kind of start talking about the lights, dim the lights, and everybody's going to make love. So I guess it's sort of like a, a sex dinner party. I don't really know. Maybe. This next track comes from a great label called the Numero Group, and this is a song called Black Knight is Calling Me Home by a guy named Donald Thomas. I don't really understand what this song is really supposed to be. It's kind of like a mellow, simple folk song, but there's this guy doing like a doo-wop bass man vocal that's sort of underneath it. But it's not underneath it because they made it so much louder than everything else in the song. The song itself is like a distant ghost off in the background, and you just kind of hear this breathing... Doom, 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 like guy in the foreground. Um, and yet it's it's very oddly soothing and mellow and kind of does what it's supposed to do. Another track I'd play is this um, this Michael Hurley song. It's uh, kind of more earthy and maybe slightly dark than the other selections that I chose. And it's a song called Rue of Ruby Whores. Um, I can't fully tell what he's saying in this song. His vocals are kind of um, buried. I woke up on it's a beautiful, weird, kind of unconventional melody that kind of repeats and loops back on itself a little bit. It sounds like all the musicians are right about on the verge of falling asleep. And um, I just really enjoy the kind of... Um, chilled out but also very like organic and earthy quality to the, the vibe of how the song feels I'm a big fan of sloppy playing <laughs> it's not just because I can't play tightly I mean although that is true but it, it's also that I'm an aficionado and um, this song has a lot of that that kind of like lax dripping off their fingers but also kind of falling on the ground quality and uh, if you're a really good musician there's something about that that's really wonderful if I had to choose a song from our catalog I think it would be from our most recent record I'm Very Far and I think it would be the song Your Past Life as a Blast It was, uh, yeah, it was kind of our attempt to, to do something that was like happy but didn't feel like it was telling a lie, that felt like it acknowledged sort of sad or unpleasant parts of, of life too. And it's one of the ones that's consistently most fun to play live from the new record too. We just really enjoy doing it because it has that sort of more dancey, groovy thing, which is something we hadn't done in the past. a dinner party soundtrack from Will Chef of Ockerville River. And that concludes this encore presentation of the Dinner Party Download for this week. Yes, next week we will have a piping hot, fresh new show ready for you. Yum. Till then, Jackson Musker is our assistant producer. Tamika Adams and Brittany Martin are our interns. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Thanks also to Chris Clark, Chris Peters, and our friends at the public radio show, Marketplace. Bon appétit. <laughs>